0: folks, I'm Mary-Claire Erdenast. Welcome to Play for Keep's podcast. We are recording new plays as podcasts in Ashland, Oregon, as a part of the Ashland New Plays Festival. We've created this podcast series to let you in on a conversation between creators at the front lines of new works. Today, we're talking with two of my favorite playwrights, Ian August and Beth Cander. Ian August wrote The Excavation of Mary Anning, a 2018 winner at the Ashland New Plays Festival. And Beth Cander wrote two winners of the Ashland New Place Festival, The Bottle Tree in 2015 and Hazardous Materials in 2016. Uh, Ian, we're about to be on an adventure.
1: What kind of adventure?
2: It's going to, I think, mostly be playwriting related, but there's no guarantees that we're staying on that train. I might transfer. I might jump onto a bus.
1: Well, that's good. I enjoy taking buses. Uh Except I don't because I get motion sickness.
2: I do too. Um, do you I really? Dram. I mean, yeah, I get real motion. I have to sit in the front seat. I can't sit in back seats.
1: So I just got back from Orlando, where I did the Disney thing with my husband. Ah, so lucky. Well, so lucky. Except when you have motion sickness, those rides are not the best. Oh, you
2: thing have to, to know do. what ones to not go on. There's a whole well, list.
1: Well, apparently nobody nobody forwarded me the list, Candor. Um, so I I, I basically just that. winged it. And then would go on rides and would come off the rides like, I need a couple of minutes. And he was like, <laughs> "He was like, are you going to be okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. He's like, do you want to eat something? I'm like, what kind of a terrible suggestion is that? <laughs> like, so I want to you know, eat, I'm gonna eat something we're just so right I now. can grow up. All right. What are we doing right now?
2: Right now, like what we have been doing is my favorite thing in a podcast, which is when there's this great preamble before you even know who's talking.
1: Mm. So we should probably introduce ourselves?
2: That's what I was thinking might come next.
1: Okay. Uh, I am Ian August. I am a playwright based in central New Jersey, outside of Princeton. Uh, who are you?
2: I'm Beth Cander. I'm a playwright and author based in Chicago, where I have to rely on stories to keep me warm for way too many months of the year.
1: Aw, I use blankets. <laughs> <laughs> You're so innovative. Well, part of it is innovation, and also part of it is just not being poor. Um, oh, what? 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 Okay, that's not true. If I were, if I were really wealthy, I would not use blankets. I would just use money stitched together.
2: True. You'd probably also not be doing a podcast <laughs> with me. Let's be
1: real. I don't know. I think this is pretty swank. I
2: I, mean, feel per- I, I, I kind of want <laughs> to make a bet, much like. We had this this feeling when we met in Ashland. Uh-huh. We'll get back to Ashland, Oregon in a, in a moment. Yes. Um, we had this weird feeling that by the end of the week, and uh, podcast listeners, I, I would like to note that um, Ian and I are, I mean, we both are gorgeous and look much younger than we are. But we're not, you know, like kid kids. We're not. And yet when we met, Ian was like, before the end of this week, there's going to be a piggyback ride that involves you and me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a piggyback ride. And that happened before the end of the week. It did. I am a mother. I am an adult. I was piggyback riding on playwright Ian August <laughs> down the streets of Ashland. So and not everyone prediction. can say that. No, I hope I hope not. No. I hope no. not, Ian. <laughs> um, no, my prediction is we're going to get to the end of this podcast, and I'm going to be like, Ian, do you want to do a podcast with me?
1: Oh, that's really nice. No, I can tell you in advance the answer is no. I'm not interested in doing that at all.
2: Oh, then I'm not going to ask you because you right. already gave me an answer. <laughs> all right. All right. So Ashland okay. New Place Festival. That's mm-hmm. our origin story. That's right. As friends and rivals. Um, I, as
1: rivals. So I was one of the winners last year, 2018, for uh, my play, The Excavation of Mary Anning. And you were our host playwright.
2: I was. And the excavation of Mary Anning, like I'll make fun of Ian August, the playwright in Human, but I will not make fun of that show because it is beautiful and incredible and everyone should see it and do it and love it.
1: Oh, that's really sweet of you to say. And she's right. Everyone should do it and love it because it is incredible. I don't know. I'm very <laughs> proud of this particular piece. No, I am is. very proud that's, of this
2: play. It's a great play, and it got me in, uh, to Ashland as one of the winners of Ashland New Plays Festival, which is what first got me to Ashland. Uh, in 2015, my play The Bottle Tree was one of the four ANPF selections. And then in 2016, um, my play Hazardous Materials had me back two times in a row. And I think that's when uh, Kyle Hayden, the artistic director, and some of the other uh, Ashland folks were like oh god we're not getting rid of her she wants to keep coming back so an amazing host playwright uh, E.M. Lewis Ellen mm. Lewis who small world is also like a good friend of yours from yeah. way pre-ANPF.
1: Yes uh, Ellen had won the hotter fellowship at Princeton University and she'd moved out here to uh, be a, a their playwright artist for, I think it's for three years. I'm not exactly sure how that goes. Um, but in that time she joined a playwriting group that I was a member of at the Passage Theater in Trenton and we became, uh, fast friends. And so it was, she was in fact, who introduced me to uh, Ashland and said, you should really apply for this. And so, um, I, I give Ellen all the credit in the universe. Um, without her, I would not have been able to to come to Ashland and meet you and subsequently give you a piggyback ride.
2: So thank you, Ellen Lewis, for my piggyback ride. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but Ellen really is like a playwright's playwright. She's very good at connecting folks. And uh, when when I was asked to step into this role after she had been doing it for, I think, seven years, yeah. that was, I mean, that was much just my biggest hesitation is no one wants to be compared to E.M. Lewis, because she's great. Um, no one
1: wants to be, con- I mean, she is great. She's pretty fabulous. But but you are also pretty darn fabulous. And well, you made you. the experience really wonderful. Uh, it was, um, it was one, of, every morning you had a place in the coffee shop in downtown. <laughs> and every morning we would wake up in various forms of, of coherence and we would find our way down to the coffee shop and sit and just kind of talk through the day and uh, sometimes we would have little writing dates, and we would sit in the in the coffee shop and just work, and, or in the woods, or in the woods. Sometimes we would stumble out into the park, and we would and we would work in the park, and it was it was just really wonderful. Um, you you created an environment that was extremely welcoming, and I encourage any playwrights listening to uh, apply for you know to be a part of that experience because it really was second to none. It was great.
2: I'm so glad. I, I I sincerely think of Ashland as sort of a magical place for playwrights. Um, I've always found it to be a great writing week and a great community week. And that's definitely uh, my goal is just to make it the best week that you're going to have that year. If you're a playwright that comes to ANPF, um, (laughs) because we don't always get as playwrights the opportunity to bond with other playwrights. I do love that we get to work with other theater artists. I mean, much more so than, you know, when I'm working on a novel, that's much more solitary than when I'm working on a play. And I know like directors and designers and actors are going to be part of this journey with me soon. Um, but you don't always get to spend like a week of time with your colleagues who are in the same seat that you're in as the playwright.
1: Can I, can I, transition for a second based on something you just said because it's one of the things that i am interested in when i am talking to beth kander about beth kander's work
2: oh well do tell
1: (laughs) all right so you are an accomplished playwright and we know that we've established that already but you are also a very talented novelist and currently have uh the first book of a trilogy out right now um, yeah the second one comes out this year that's very exciting, uh, but I'm really curious. I have an interest in fiction. I love reading fiction. I work in a library, so I'm constantly recommending things. I'm in the middle of your book right now. Hold on, plug. That's original a plug. sin. Original sin by Beth Candor. <laughs> um, buy it. It's freaking excellent. But Thank you. I am just really curious. How did your playwriting life sort of inform your? novelist writing life, your novel writing life. <laughs> Does that make sense?
2: Yes, totally. Uh, and I think it's sort of a bittersweet answer. I think the good way that playwriting uh, impacted my writing life is I, I hear dialogue in a way that I'm not sure all other novelists instantly hear it because I'm used to writing for different voices and imagining a different, uh, people and players involved in everything that I'm doing. Um, And I think that there's more of an ensemble feel to the novels that I write, even when it's a primary protagonist, which Original Sin has multiple points of view. Um, But usually I write primary protagonist stories and I still feel like the voices and the sort of theatricality that I've learned from years as a playwright shapes how I drive the story forward. Mm. Um, But when I dedicate a lot of time uh, to book projects it's often because and I for all the other playwrights listening out there I think we've all had those moments where you also feel like oh I have to write other stuff because playwriting is both emotionally exhausting and hard to get to pay the bills even if you have a lot of work out there even if you're doing it all the time um and that's part of what let my uh, let me grant myself the permission to try a trilogy so I'm like well I can crank out a lot of plays but I kind of need a break if I'm going to keep doing that. So, right. you know, dystopian epic. That's a good break.
1: <laughs> I think that's really exciting. And I also love the idea that, that, that this piece is an ensemble piece. And it is, it feels like an ensemble piece. Hazardous Materials was also kind of an ensemble piece. It didn't mm-hmm. follow one solo protagonist. You really felt as though the play was geared to give you the perspectives of all four of the characters in a really, um, a really complex and, a beautifully executed way. I love that play. I thought it was really great.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, ANPF Artistic Director uh, Kyle Hayden is directing Hazardous Materials at Creed Rep this summer. So anyone who wants to come to Colorado and see that Uh, world premiere. It's going to be amazing. Um, Tell us a little bit about your upcoming Great Plains journey, because I just finished your beautiful new play last night. And I just I had to take a minute before I could even email you back about it, because the images in it and the movement were so strong. I was actually like rocking a little as (laughs) I read it. I'm a very I'm a very uh, engaged reader.
1: Well, uh, so the play is called Breeze. And it's a one-person play, which is... uh, This is my second one-person play. I've written one uh, before um, that had gotten a few productions. And I just wanted to focus in on a singular voice. And there's something really exciting about writing a one-person play, about uh, finding sort of the balance between narrative and the immediacy of the moment. Um, And so this piece uh, is... Uh, about uh, a young man, a professional dancer, who is struck with some kind of um, early, it's early onset dementia, essentially, and begins losing his memories. Um, and the play is a series of video entries in which he's um, sort of talking about his day to uh, the camera. The audience is the camera, um, and in talking about his, you know, what's going on in his life, he's also attempting to sort of um, deal with his relationship with his his longtime partner and also his estranged mother who comes from uh, somewhere in the Midwest to come in, and stay with him. Um, so the play is, a I think, it's a big departure from some of the other work that I've been doing lately. Mm-hmm. The Excavation of Mary Anning had, I think, six actresses playing 28 different roles. And here I have one person who is standing in front of an audience and just talking for an hour and five minutes. Um, but there is there is movement to it. There is, um, uh, there's sort of technological elements that are incorporated into it. And, um, I think it's a really, I think it's a lovely piece as is, but it was selected for this year's, uh, Great Plains Theater Conference. So I'll be heading to Omaha to workshop it, uh, in late May, um, for about a week.
2: Mazel tub, It's very exciting. Thank you. And I think it's so funny that you describe it as, you know, this single voice and this guy just talking because, yes, it <laughs> is that. But also in reading say like there's so much embodiment of the characters that he's afraid of losing that I saw them. I mean, yeah. even in just reading it, and I'm sure – And this is going to segue into a second question. I'm sure that with the actor that you have, it's going to be that experience for the audience where they see Francine and they see Teddy, they see these other characters. I don't want to spoil anything. Um, But so here's my question. I know because I internet stalk you that you are not playing the role at Great Plains. Have you ever written for yourself? Like this is for Ian, the actor, to perform.
1: So when I started... Writing plays. Um, When I started writing plays, I was transitioning out of being a professional actor. Um, I wanted to sort of get away from being on the stage and um, explore storytelling from a different angle. Um, And so I made it actually a point not to write things that I would have been comfortable being in. Mm -hmm. Um, The first, there were two short plays that I wrote back I think in like 2005 or whatever. And it was, I was still sort of uh, uh, auditioning and trying to get uh, work as an actor. And um, I ended up being in a uh, a production of both of those plays. Um, One of them was at the Samuel French Festival in New York. And one of them was at a a short play festival at the New Jersey Repertory Company in Long Branch. And that was the last time I've, I've been on stage. Uh, I, I, that's not totally true. I think I acted, uh, I, I think I acted last year. I did a staged reading or two years ago, I did a staged reading for a friend of mine, but I had a script in hand. It wasn't, there was no costumes. Like yeah. I wasn't actually, you know, performing, performing. I was, but I was just, you know, I was doing, you know, like what actors do during readings. So, um, but I, I generally have tried to resist the temptation of, writing characters that I would be interested in playing because I'm not, not really wanting to go back on stage anytime soon. I miss it sometimes, but like, but I'm, I'm a jerk in real life. I don't need to be a jerk on stage too. (laughs) jerk was not the word I was going to use. So Kara Quinn, you should be really, really happy about
2: that. (laughs) See, we're keeping it family-friendly, Kara, all good. Family-friendly podcast.
1: That's right.
2: Um, Yeah, I think actually we've been really good so far about our language. I'm proud of us. I just want to point that out and give us a little high five.
1: Yeah, because that is not normal behavior for either of us.
2: (laughs) It's kind of true. Um. So one of the questions, in fact, that uh, Carson over for us, I'm looking t- toggling over to my other screen, mm-hmm. um, is if we have worked on a project together outside of our time here. Uh, she also added hashtag Candor and Deb, which I guess uh, we have to
1: explain Candor and Deb I since you brought it up. I guess we have to
2: explain Candor and Deb, and then we'll go back to the to the other part.
1: So I what's Candor and Deb? I don't remember the origins of Candor and Deb. Candor and Deb, oh, that's <laughs> nice. We. <laughs>
2: We're allowed to flip and swear. We'll decide what oh, we
1: will. Frellins. yeah, we've got to make a, a really conscious decision about what kind of language we want to use. Well,
2: here's the, I am a huge fan of The Good Place, so I'm also totally down with going with like mother forking shirt balls and that type yeah. of
1: swearing, too. Yeah, that sounds great. Shirt balls are fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what? When, how did we come up with Kendra and Deb? I, it was like Deb was buzzed. Candor and like Deb it was going to be my drag persona? Like yeah, this yeah. old so Jewish people lady? People
2: ask me all the time if I'm related to John Candor, uh, which um. I now lie and say, yes, absolutely. But sure. no, I'm not. There's like, there's two different Candor families and I, unfortunately, Uncle Johnny is not part of mine. Um, but so, yeah, then it came up that you would be a fantastic large, lovely Jewish drag queen named Deb and then we could yeah. be Candor and Deb and it would be great. Um, But sadly, beyond five minutes of joking that you subsequently forgot about when it came to candor (laughs) and death, we have not worked on anything. But even though you've already turned me down preemptively for being a podcast co-host...
1: I I would be a podcast co-host with you.
2: Wait. I don't know what you're talking about. You're toying with my emotions. You're gaslighting. This is gaslighting. I want to take a moment to educate everyone. You're making me sound crazy.
1: What are you talking about?
2: Um... But no, sincerely, I, I feel like we've known each other for a really long time, but we met in October, so okay. it would be kind of amazing <laughs> if we had already done something together. But I'd like to think that we will have a long and storied friendship full of piggyback rides and drag queen jokes, and someday we'll get to do something
1: together. Would you like to do a podcast with me? What would you like it to be about? I
2: mean, I feel like the possibilities are kind of endless.
1: Hey, great. We I agree. I had a recent... It, um- we call it what do we call it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to go for the for like obvious Jewish jokes, but
2: Mm-mm, no, too easy. That would actually be a good name. Too easy, with Ian August and Beth
1: Gander. That feels more appropriate than it should.
2: Mother forking
1: shirt balls. Mother um, forking shirt balls. so yeah, no. Tell me Beth. Yes,
2: I'll tell you, Ian.
1: Tell me. I am curious. Are you, so are you enmeshed in the world of Original Sin right now? Or are you working on any, any plays? Like, what are you working on?
0: I,
2: all of the above. Yeah. Um, so the second book in the series is now Advanced Reader Copies are out. It comes out this fall, which means I'm working on it on edits for book three. Wow. But, and this I think is a good, uh, I'll turn the question over to you next. I'm never working on just one project at once because I don't believe in writer's block As an overwhelming uh crippling condition wherein you can write nothing, but I do believe it happens for a project. Like you can hit a wall with a project. Yeah. Uh, so I always have something else to jump back to. And for the first time in a while, instead of another book, I uh I do have a play script that I'm picking away at. And it kind of made me think of you. I almost emailed you when I started writing it. And I'm not just making this up for the podcast because a, I've never had a play come to me this way before. Like I was lying in bed and I saw the entire play, That's like sweet. saw it, picked up my phone, emailed bullet points to myself of the entire outline at like one in the morning. And it was there waiting for me when I woke up. And the other reason that uh, it made me think of you, cause I feel like that, that would happen to you um, is because it takes place in, uh, the ancient Middle East and contemporary Pensacola, Florida.
1: Nice. That's awesome. There's
2: there's some Jews
1: and there's some Jews. Well, so (laughs) you've been drawing, you draw a lot from, from your own life in your, in your playwriting work. Um, Simply, from, I know you're you're Jewish, and you also spent some time in Mississippi, and so the bottle tree takes place in Mississippi, and so I, I'm I'm thinking that there was some inspiration from there, and um, your, you know, your Judaism played pretty heavily into hazardous materials. Uh-huh. Um, that's a really big uh idea in that. Um, do you find that there are since I'm only like a, a quarter of the way through Original Sin, are there pieces of your life that's that are emerging in a different way through uh through your novel work
2: yeah I think so I I think through all of um the things that I'm writing now there's a lot more surfaced identity and I think that that's I don't want to say it's zeitgeisty, but I do think that we are in a moment where everyone's thinking more about what are my stories, what are not my stories that I yeah. shouldn't be telling. Um, and so that the good spin on that is hopefully it helps you lean into like the rich histories and identities that you have and what is it that you've been scared to explore. Because I also didn't like to write stuff that felt overly personal when I was younger. I didn't want it to feel... you know, too self-involved or too close to the bone that it was going to, you know, hurt or hurt someone's feelings in my family. And I think the more you trust yourself as a writer, the more you have to let go some of those restrictions you put on yourself.
1: I feel the same way. I think when I started out, I was really interested in uh, trying to write from perspectives that were not mine, Uh, simply as, as almost like a, as a mark of a good writer to be Mm -hmm. able to say, I'm really good at this. I can can write a story from a perspective. That's not my perspective. Yeah. Um, and it's taken me uh, a lot of years and a lot of reading of Ellen Lewis plays to realize that, oh, they're all my perspective. Like (laughs) I, I need to get over myself and just write whatever, whatever story I'm writing, whatever I'm writing about is really about me in the long run. And embracing that I think has made me a stronger writer. Um, I am writing, uh, to answer the question from like before uh, that, Uh I don't know if you officially asked, but we talked about it anyway. I'm always, you're right. I'm always writing multiple projects simultaneously. And right now I'm in the middle of three new plays, three new full lengths. Um, one of which has just been a slog, (laughs) been really hard getting through it. I don't know what it is, uh, what it's going to be yet. I've got a good 60 pages of it cranked out. I'm ready to start on act two. I was reading through it before we started our call today because I'm trying to figure out where do I go from here and what did I, what did I not do, right? There's that thing where you don't want to edit yourself while you're in the process of creating because it's two different sort of sides of your brain. But I find that I, like a lot of playwrights, uh, I don't always begin with an outline. I don't always begin with, you know, a character with a really strong want. I'm not always able to start by um, answering Marcia Norman's questions about right <laughs> filling in her her fill in the blank questions yeah. about playwriting. You know, my protagonist's name is blank. My protagonist wants blank, but blank. That but in
2: the thing. way is blank. Yeah.
1: Right. So, uh, so sometimes I just want to start with a concept and just think, oh, I've got this idea and I just want to go and explore. And what I'm finding now, uh, with this particular piece that I'm working on is that I don't know (laughs) what I'm doing. I just, I'm just pushing forward. And so I'm hoping to get to the end sometime over the next couple of weeks so I can look back and say, all right, what the heck is this? Uh, what, what in God's name am I doing? (laughs) And and there's a It's such a
2: good place to be though, to be there and to, to keep pushing yourself. Because I think that sometimes when you get to your best stuff, at least for me, is when I have no idea what this mess is, but there's just something in it that's compelling enough that I keep pushing past the big question mark phase. Yeah. Um, all right. So since you have multiple products going as well, I'm also Mm -hmm. curious about this and I will phrase that as a direct question. All right. What do you do? When there's something that you love about a piece that you're working on, but you decide that you really are done with that piece, like, do you mind content from old stuff or when it's gone, it's gone. Or how does that go for you?
1: Oh yeah. No, I pirate my own shit all the time. <laughs> oh, I, I, cursed. All right. So that, shirt. I, that, all that right. one shirt, I'm I, sorry, in
2: the swag, yeah. I'm okay.
1: sorry, uh, but yeah, it's, so I had a play that I wrote in like 2006, 2007. It was like my first full length and it was this piece that was, um, it was a, a part narrative and part, uh, scene work, 10 characters, Um, it had a few workshops and it had one production and I was really, really proud of that play, but that was 10 years ago, longer than that. Sorry, it's 12 years ago now. And I'm, I'm still interested in kind of exploring what are the limits of utilizing narration in uh, a multi-character dramatic piece. And so this play that's been giving me Ajita, uh, (sighs) Is is that, is is my attempt to use that. I'm essentially pirating something that I've done before. Yeah. And I think that I've done to, uh, with relative success and attempting to uh, try it again in a different context with a different feel, with different characters and a different plot um, and see if that works. Um, and at the same time, I have another piece that uh, one of the other plays that I'm working on right now is this... Off the wall surrealist comedy uh, about uh, about about home and about the impermanence of home um, from the perspective of um, two teenagers, one of whom is an escaped uh, dreamer uh, who who got out of a detention facility um, uh, using some mm, pretty strange methods, and another one is a uh, um, a queer kid who was kicked out of their home for being queer. And so the two of them come together and go on this sort of like journey trip through the United States. And that is, uh, it's, it's like taking some of the more fantastical elements of Marianne, but, but just, I'm letting myself just go crazy with my imagination, just letting it take me wherever it's going to go. Um, characters are popping up that I didn't know that they were going to be there. And now I have to figure out why they're there. It's like, I'm making this really insane puzzle and mm-hmm. constructing the pieces on the way. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answered your question or if I got totally off topic.
2: No, it, it, it did. And it also sort of leads me to the question. Um, cause I, I love, I love all of that. Um, but do you ever worry because someone recently asked me about this Mm -hmm. about like not having a strong enough brand or identity as a writer you know ian august is a playwright who writes x because you write a really diverse body of work and different characters and wherever each story takes you uh is that something that anyone has ever given you uh any (laughs) spilkis about or what are your thoughts on that
1: you know i don't know uh I, my friends who come and see my work can recognize me in the work, and that's really uh, that's nice. I don't mind that. Um, I'm I'm never worried. There are some some writers I know who really try to uh, remove themselves from the text, and I don't think that that's possible. I think we are the text, so that's how that goes. Um, this is me snapping. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I I'm not really sure. I I'm not sure that I will ever have. An identity in the way, like Stoppard has an identity, and Mamet has an identity, and um, you know when there are plays when you can hear a phrase and you know, oh, I know who that playwright is, you know, or or, or see a scene and be like, I I know exactly who that playwright is. Uh, I don't, I don't know that that's ever going to happen to me. Um, I am much more interested in. Telling stories in a way that I think is interesting and unique and um, emotionally connective, than I am about worrying about a brand. But then again, I'm not that well produced. <laughs> I'm not 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 that the productions Everyone haven't been amazing, productive. Yeah. <laughs> but like there's but there's something to be said for her. I'm not you know I'm not in one of the uh, sort of upper tiers of, of the, the playwriting echelon, uh, I am, I'm relatively low stacked. I don't have a lot to lose by experimentation and mm. trying things and failing. I don't have a lot to lose from failing because most of what I've done is fail. <laughs> <laughs> Club failure.
2: Yeah. I've long been a member. Um, I continue paying my dues, but sincerely I, <laughs> Your work is so good, and I do think you will be in those upper echelons one day. And when you are, I hope that you keep playing and experimenting because, yeah, I, I always want to tell the story in the way that it is best served. Mm-hmm. And for me, that means not a lot of consistency across uh, you know genres, <laughs> platforms, uh, let alone within just my plays. but yeah. I really resonate too with what you said. Like any of my friends who come to see my work or who have read my short stories and my books are like, Oh, I hear you in here. Like, this is you. I definitely see you in these words.
1: Yeah. I like that. I like that, that people who know me really well can identify my voice in my work. Uh, And I also like that people who don't know me really well are sometimes surprised that I'm able to write what I write. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always been kind of extraordinary when when complete strangers at a talk back say, I I'm not sure that I understand how you could write this. Uh, for any number of reasons. Um, I had written <laughs> I had written a, a play, a short piece, uh um uh, about a woman who gives uh, birth. It's her first Uh, child and she's really nervous and she's in stirrups at the beginning of the play and she's in bed and she, she's, talking to the doctor. What kind of a kid am I going to have? What kind of a daughter am I going to have? I'm so nervous. She could be anything. She could be horrible. She could be wonderful. What, what will I do? What do I, what do I do? And the doctor's like, no worries, no worries. And he leaves the room. And the minute he leaves the room, of course, she gives birth to a fully formed, really bitchy teenager. <laughs> oh my God. As
2: the mother of a daughter, I'm like, what, what happened?
1: <laughs> so, so she gives birth to this teenager who's just the worst. I mean, just uh, the, the most horrible embodiment of a teenage girl. You can imagine, uh, uh, her, her, my favorite moment is when her phone rings and the teenager has to reach her arm back in and get her purse out. Yeah. Cause it was, she left. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not particularly graphic if it happens under a blanket, but it is a great moment. Um, she gets really upset that she's still attached by the umbilical cord makes the doctor come in and like cut it um so, but uh but after that at the talk back <laughs> i had some some woman say how did you know how terrifying it is how are you able to write me being a man who's never given birth probably will never give birth unless I mean, si- science makes some science makes extraordinary but yeah leaf. odds are low odds are low uh how, how are you able to write this woman's fear? And I guess the thought behind it is that we are, we have all experienced that kind of fear in, in different ways. And it's just being manifested in this one way. So it's her fear is something I can connect to and relate to her concern about creating a monster is something I can understand, (laughs) even if I will never be able to go through that myself um yeah I I think it's really I think it's really cool I love I love reading your stuff and seeing I love seeing the stuff that's not the Beth I know (laughs) uh I recently read a piece of flash fiction of yours that was absolutely lovely oh here's one of the things I wanted to talk about
2: let's talk about it what is
1: it I wanted to talk to, to you about, um, about dropping hints.
2: Mm, Okay. Uh,
1: and, and the way you, you drop hints in your plays, not necessarily as foreshadowing, but they're like little seeds that we're just kind of waiting to see what happens. And sometimes you, you, sometimes you, pull up from that, and and we get to see everything you're talking about, and sometimes we don't. And the seeds just kind of lay there and remain buried for us to just think about on our own. And I'm curious about the way you go about thinking that way, or does it just come naturally? Do you just do that instinctively with your work?
2: Uh, thank you for that question. I wish that I could say, no, it just comes naturally. Everything is <laughs> just... Yeah. Um, I do think it comes more naturally now, but I will say, and I think you might be the first person who have ever asked me about that. So again, thank you for the question. It's one of my favorite things to do in writing. I know. Um, (laughs) it's one of my very favorite things to do in writing is to put in those little seeds for the reader who pays attention. So if you miss them, you still get a good story. So that they are not vital to the overall picture, but for the reader who wants every little detail, for the reader who's mining for something that they know other people will miss, you will always find something there. Um, And sometimes I have some of those in a first draft, but often it's when I'm revising Um, especially with plays that I'll go back and be like, okay, whether it's a stage direction that I drop in for a designer or a line that I give to an actor, what can I go and put in? And I'll, I'll sometimes even like circle lines or monologues and be like, I feel like there could be something more here that we get a little hint of earlier mm. and then go back and figure out where to put it in. But yeah, it's my, it's, it's my tiny quiet little love song to the readers who love another layer. That's just beneath.
1: Oh, I love it. I grew up on Agatha Christie. And so I'm always looking mm. for like little bits and pieces of, of mysteries. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's all about the mysteries. It's all about trying to find like, what are, what are the little hints that are going to lead us somewhere later? And what are the little hints that are red herrings that it, Right. That are going to, we're going to chase those hints for the the rest of the play and we're not going to get anything. Yep. I love that. I think that's really great.
2: Yeah. I always thought that I couldn't write a mystery because I love reading mysteries. I love mystery films. I love Sherlock, like all of that mythology (laughs) and it's so clever and it's so, it's not just about the story, but it's about, I mean, you use the word puzzle earlier. It really is like, and knowing which pieces to leave off and keep out and then, you know, put back in at the right moment. Um, and there is a lot of mystery element to hazardous materials and it sort of taught me that, oh, maybe I can, maybe I can write a mystery that doesn't feel forced and that has enough subtlety that people are intrigued by it.
1: No, I love hazardous materials for that. I love that there's a, a revelation that I will not reveal, but that, um, that I think works so beautifully in the piece and really ties the whole thing together, uh, yeah, that's such a that's such a great answer to to a question I'm really proud of asking now that you brought it up.
2: <laughs> Candor and Deb. Um, so I'm looking and unsurprisingly, it's my first time glancing down at the clock. And we are already like at our 45 minute mark. We were told to talk for 45 minutes to an hour.
1: Mm. So we should answer some questions we should specifically answer some about questions. plays for keeps.
2: Yeah, like play for keeps and ANPF. All right, let me scroll down here. I'm looking it's away from your uh, beautiful p- face for just a moment.
1: That's it's all right. It's
2: hurting me. I'll be back. Um, okay, what appeals to us about Play for Keeps? So presumably anyone who's listening to this knows like the very basics of Play for Keeps, that it is incredible actors uh, reading plays podcast style, so that you mm-hmm. can hear um, these works and hopefully then want to engage with and produce these works. So Ian, what, what appeals to you about this notion?
1: Well, I think that there's a lot to be, uh, there's a lot about it that I really love. I think there's this movement in uh, well, in media lately, like over the last like five years, to really emphasize, emphasize um, audio plays, mm-hmm. right? Audible has had that that uh, workshop that they've been doing with various playwrights. I know, I think Chisa Hutchinson wrote a play for them that they've been, Um, Yeah, They
2: they turned me down.
1: Oh yeah. They didn't, they, they wouldn't even look at me. Um,
2: Club failure.
1: Yeah. Club failure. Hashtag club failure. Um, so, uh, so, but I think there is a, a movement towards having more, uh, accessibility to plays. And I think play for keeps is, is a really wonderful way to introduce, uh, a new work to, uh, a broader audience. Um, I'm not sure how it will work as sort of an advertisement for the play to get uh, a further production of the play. Um, But I'm also not sure that that's necessary. There's part of me that's really happy with the idea that if my work, uh, and it is currently not on Play for Keep, so I'm not pushing my own Work, Although I'm happy to push Donna Hoke's work and Diana Diana Barbano and like all the other playwrights that I know who are on it.
2: I'm not yet on it, but a lot of my faves are.
1: Um, I think that there's something really wonderful about sort of increasing the opportunity for audiences to experience the works of those writers, even if it may not be in the format that the writers had originally intended.
2: Yeah, it is a production. And I mean, I think a, a really thoughtfully approached production. So I do think as a standalone and I am, I I love podcasts. And so I love the idea that this could be yeah. another thing that during someone's commute, they can be having their heart broken or splitting their side from a play instead of a podcast. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting marketing gambit to see, oh, well, and if a busy agent doesn't have time to sit down and read a play, but they're driving home for Thanksgiving and maybe they'll listen to some plays on the way, then, you know, maybe it could help in that way. Um,
1: I think so, too. I think there's something really wonderful about uh, about radio plays. I've been actually so I have never been a big fan of audio books because I really struggle with the voice of the reader. Mm. And I find that I don't have that issue with radio plays. So uh, I recently listened to a BBC radio play of a Neil Gaiman novel because I I couldn't sit and listen to the audiobook of the Neil Gaiman novel. I wanted was it to...
2: Neverwhere or was it something else?
1: It was something else. It was, uh, it was uh, Norse mythology.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so... Uh, apparently also the Norse gods were jerks. Oh, they were all total. Just the worst.
2: Jackasses. There's my swear.
1: Oh, schmucks. Can I say schmucks?
2: Yeah, you can always say schmucks. I'm
1: going to say schmucks. I said it. Um, so I think that it's a, I think this is a really great opportunity. I would love to see, uh, well, I would love to see more works up on the, on the website. I'm excited that they're, that they are reaching out to new writers and, um, yeah, I want to, it's so early, I think in the life of the program to be able to, to say like how effective it's going to be, but I, I'm hopeful and excited.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I just think we're in such a saturated media world that if it's one more way to give playwrights an opportunity to push their work so that maybe if they're, you know, sharing on their Facebook page, hey, I have this Play for Keeps podcast, it also might inspire someone to go to their new play exchange page. Yeah. And get the actual script if they're like, oh, that sounds appealing to me, but I'm not a podcast person. Um, yeah, sort of the more the more. Anything that gives you a little bit more of a megaphone to say, here I am, here's my
1: work, is I'm something great.
2: we writers need.
1: <laughs> and the difference between, let's face it, sometimes it's really hard to kind of see a play on the page and really understand how it's supposed to feel and how it's supposed to sound. And listening to it is a really great alternative to that. We talk often about how... If you are having a really bad day and you're a reader for a new play festival and you're reading a comedy, you're not going to find that comedy that funny. Yeah. And the truth is, is that, you know, maybe you won't find the audio version of that comedy that funny either, but I think you'll probably get a better sense of what the piece is supposed to feel like mm-hmm. from, from, uh, from a reading than you will from just. Right. Cause it's
2: not the filter of your head, your day. You are hearing someone else's intention.
1: Exactly. That's my, that's my take on, on, uh, play for keeps. It sounds really Yay, cool. play for
2: keeps. Yay, Yay playwrights.
1: Yay. Yay, playwrights.
2: Um, so if we do a podcast together, which I'm not yeah. going to ask about, i you're going to have to ask me. It's like one of those weird, like, I almost proposed to you and you're like, you know, I wouldn't say yes. So if we're ever going to do this, it'll be because you asked me, but I would we'll do call it. it, we'll call it.
1: We'll call it candor and dab and I'll do the whole thing. Like you're like your old aunt.
2: I'll <laughs> <They'll> be like, <laughs> okay, now we're just going with that. <laughs> I was otherwise going to say we could call it Failure Club.
1: The Failure Club. Hashtag Club Failure. Yeah. Oh. like every week,
2: how did you fail this week, Ian? Because let me tell you, when you ask me that question, I will always have an answer for, hey, Beth, how did you fail this week?
1: Hey, Beth. How did you fail this week? Do
2: you want to know how I failed as a mother, as a writer, as a wife?
1: (laughs) Let's try. Let's try because this is a writing a writing podcast. Let's try as a writer first, and then see where we go.
2: (laughs) Okay, uh, I failed as a writer this week Mm -hmm. because I got two more rejections from literary agents, and for like, yeah, right. That already was like rejection the first and the second, and rejection the third was then for like a solid rest of the mopey day. I was like, I'm done. Done with this whole submitting work thing. And I'm over it. Like, I picked myself back up the next day. But writing is hard, man. You have to fail constantly.
1: I had a friend of mine who was a a prose writer. She writes um, sort of uh, creative nonfiction from a travel perspective. And she's really talented. And she posted something on Facebook uh, last week and said, I got two rejections today. How do people deal with it? And I just wrote it and I was like, honey, (laughs) I got two rejections a week. Like that is nothing. Every
2: week. Every
1: week. Yeah. Yeah. My
2: best week. I think I got 17 rejections in a week.
1: So wonderful. It was almost, it was almost high.
2: Almost. I was this close to getting my chai rejection. Uh, for for the non-members of the tribe listening, the number 18 is chai. It means life. It's really lucky.
1: It's supposed to be really lucky, but it but 17 doesn't mean shit. So 17 means another
2: shirt balls. You're a big no. Yeah, I did a whole project a couple of years ago. I started called 100 Rejections. Hashtag 100 Rejections. I tried to get 100 in a year. And that did, was when last I had year. the week of seventeen. Did you get a hundred in in a single year?
1: The truth is, is that I think I got more than a hundred. <sighs> well, so I last year, oh, okay. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna tear away from you for a second. According to my spreadsheet that I always have up, last year I did
2: in August.
1: I did a hundred and twelve submissions last year, and of those hundred and twelve, I was successful in one, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, ten. Ten uh, out of 112.
2: A, that's amazing. And B, you know you're the real winner because one of those wins brought you to me.
1: That is so true. Wait, was that? No, that was two years ago. Right? Because I submitted to Ashland in 2017. No?
2: But you got in in 2018.
1: I did get it in 2018, but that doesn't count towards my 2018 wins. (laughs) That counts towards my 2017 wins.
2: (laughs) So where are you? Where are you in 2019? Do you have a spreadsheet for this year?
1: Of course I do. So uh, 2019, I have uh, submitted to 29 different opportunities.
2: That's pretty good. By March 17th, that's good.
1: And I have been rejected by three of them, one of which was a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) and the rest i just haven't heard from and i'll be rejected from them later um Yeah. yeah but my 20 my 20 my 2018 successes will hopefully result in things here in 2019 and so last year's submission to uh great plains theater conference with brise worked out so that i'm able to go to that this year which is nice the trouble will be when we get to like september and i haven't been <laughs> i haven't gotten any acceptances or finished any new plays um and then then it's then i'm gonna look into writing a trilogy
2: i mean that's sounds like a really smart move that a really wise person <laughs> would pursue um thanks for doing this podcast with me this was really fun
1: I adore you. So I would have, I will take any opportunity to talk with you in a way where I can't be sure of who's listening.
2: <laughs> it's probably safest that way. Um, yay, playwrights. Yay, plays. Yay, AMPF. plays. Yay, play AMPF.
1: Ray play for keeps. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, Thanks,
0: y'all. We had fun. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time to hear a conversation between Sarah Mitchell, playwright of Art of Choke and Cara Quinn-Lewis, the art director at Play for Keeps podcast. And please check out our latest pod play, Elevator Girl by Donna Hoke. Donna Hoke is a winner of the Kilroy's List from 2016 for her play Brilliant Works of Art, which you can also listen to at playforkeeps.org. The cast of Elevator Girl is Aurelia Grierson, Jonah Thorpe Cramp, Jake Rader, and Annie Paul. Play for Keeps podcast is produced by Ashland New Place Festival and Play for Keeps. This podcast was produced by Andy Herndon. Art direction by Cara Quinn-Lewis. Play for Keeps is directed by Jim Pagliasoti. Written content is edited by Carol Florian. Special thanks to Kyle Hayden, Jackie Apodaca, and Beth Kander. This is your host, Mary Claire Erdenast. Please visit us online at playforkeeps.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Please help us spread the word. Follow, like, share, and retweet. See you next time at Play for Keeps Podcast. Books are meant to be read. Plays are meant to be said.